0: Hi, Chris Ballatin here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. That's a good word right there. That's a way to start a conference right there. Uh, Um once you turn to first Samuel chapter 10, I want to just share encounters. Have great purpose. I'm gonna tell you most of the story because I have several scriptures and I, I want to um, actually get to the um some of the prayer time. In 1 Samuel 10, it's the story of Samuel and Saul. And if you don't know the story, Samuel's the prophet, and Saul is a young man who is serving his father and looking for donkeys. And they can't find the donkeys, so his servant says to Saul's servant says to him, I think there's a prophet at the next city up here. Maybe he'll know where our donkeys are. And I just want to say, sometimes you're looking for your donkeys and you find your destiny. People are all the time like, how do I find my destiny? Do what you're called to do and he'll catch you along the way. And so he finds uh, Saul. I'm sorry, Saul finds Samuel. He doesn't know he's the prophet. He says, hey, can you tell him this, where the prophet's house is? And he says, I am the prophet. And then Samuel, who's already had an encounter the day before with the Lord, who says to him, Samuel, tomorrow there's a young man coming. He's looking for donkeys, and you're going to anoint him king. Yeah. And so he says to, Samuel says to Saul, hey, you're, he says, hey, I'm looking for the prophet. He says, I'm the prophet, and by the way, your donkeys have been found. But I want you to stay with me for tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. I want, to, I want to point out that he said, I'm going to tell you what's already in your heart. For aren't you the one that all of Israel is waiting on? And Saul seems to have no idea what's in his heart. And he says to him, I don't know why you're talking to me like this. For I am from the smallest tribe. And I'm from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. Why are you speaking to me like this? And I want to stop for just a minute. I feel an emphasis right now. I want you to know that Saul was actually the son of the greatest warrior in Israel's history at that time. And I'd like to point out that when you live in a famous family, it either reduces you to a grasshopper or you stand on the shoulders of, that, of those fathers and mothers and you go where no one's ever gone before. Yeah, and nice. the difference is how you relate to the people that raised you. That's good. And in Saul's life, it reduced him. He's like, I could never be that great, so I am nothing. So now it's tomorrow morning. Chapter 10, verse 1. He anoints Samuel, anoints him king. In fact, let's just read part of it. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it over his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you over ruler over his inheritance? When you go down from me today... You will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, Azilag. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you've been look, that you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys, and he's anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? And then you will go on further from there, and you'll come as far as the oak of and there will be three men going up to God at Bethel. At Bethel. And they will meet you. Won't be carrying three goats. That's Brian Johnson. One carrying three loaves of bread. And one carrying a jug of wine. We will not mention who that is. And they will greet you with two loaves of bread. Which you will accept from their hand. And afterwards, you'll come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be, as soon as you've come there to that city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you that you shall do what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And it goes on to say that it happened, verse uh, 10, it happened that when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all these signs came about that day. And when he came to the hill country there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came on him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it shall become a proverb. Is Saul among the Proverbs, I'm sorry, among the Prophets. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And I, I just, um, there's a few things that I want to show you in this, in this encounter. Because tonight we're talking about encounters that change you. Saul has this prophetic word that he's gonna be king. There's only one problem. He's, he's got the right word, but he's the wrong guy. And Samuel says to Saul, listen, I need you to go down to these prophets. They're going to be coming down the mountain. And when you encounter them, you're going to be changed into another man. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say that there are a lot of people carrying prophetic words that never come to pass. Because you haven't come into the community that changes you into the person you need to be so you can fulfill that word. There are people standing outside the church, angry with community, not realizing that it takes community to catalyze prophetic declarations. That that community, when you find your people, those people will, will be the catalyst that change you into the person you need to be so that word can be fulfilled in you. And I want to tell you the difference between prophetic Words and prophetic cultures. A prophetic, a prophetic word will, will tell you what your destiny is, but a prophetic culture will change you into the person you need to be so you can fulfill that prophetic word. This is a beautiful word, and it's a beautiful start, and Saul starts beautifully. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that he rips his clothes off, and he prophesies with the prophets, and the, all the people are so stunned And they're they're literally, this became a proverb. They would say, if you would say, you know, you know how we say, well, God can do anything. They would say, is Saul among the prophets? Their point is, is that Saul was so far from a prophet. The fact that he hung out with the prophets and prophesied with the prophets was the biggest miracle they'd ever seen. So when you'd say, man, I'm having a hard day, they would say, is Saul among the prophets? In other words, if God can make Saul a prophet, he can solve whatever problem you have. He was so far from a prophet, they would go, "Is Saul among the prophets. In other words, God can do anything for you. And it became a byword. It became the way people encouraged one another. Man, I'm having a tough day. Saul among the prophets? But unfortunately, something happened to Saul. They, you know the story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. And David, as a 15, 16-year-old boy, kills Goliath. They have this long battle, probably months long, I would guess. They drive the Philistines out of their land. And after this long, bloody battle, they come home and the women are lining the streets. And they began to sing a song. And let me just say that it wasn't on Saul's top 40 list. It was, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his 10,000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And from that moment on, this great man, whose father was one of the greatest warriors of all time, who was so humble, when they went to anoint him, he literally hid in the luggage. He was so humble that when they went to anoint him, Saul anoints him king here, when the people go to anoint him king, he so doesn't want leadership that he hides in the luggage. They literally find their king hiding in the luggage. This is a man who started with great humility. But when he start when he begins to be jealous of David. It says he was suspicious of David. He was jealous of David. And after that song, he says, "What else can they do? What else can he do except take my kingdom?" And it says, and an evil spirit from the Lord came on him. And he begins this satanic, schizophrenic, crazy life of fearing David to the place where he finally decided that his only only move was to kill this kid who actually was making him look like a freaking genius. How many of you know, if you are a leader and you're not a father or a mother and you begin to compete with the people you're supposed to be leading. How many know you got an elder brother leadership style and when you can't celebrate that the people who work for you do greater things than you, you are lost. And Saul begins to be jealous and bitter and hateful. And for the next 14 years, he finally drives David completely out. As a matter of fact, he does things to David. He says, well, listen, um, you want to marry my daughter? Give me 100 Philistine foreskins. And the reason he does that is because he thinks, surely those 100 Philistines will kill him. But instead, he comes back with 200. (laughs) Don't don't picture that. It's all good. (laughs) He puts David, was over all the armies, then he puts David over a small part, of just a thousand troops. And those thousand troops, they're the fierce, they're like the green berets. They're like, go out and wipe everybody out. Everything he does to try to reduce David, God just keeps exalting him. Yeah. And David keeps saying to him, I don't know why you're trying to kill me. I'm loyal to you. And there's this whole journey of 14 years, 15, maybe 16 years, where he takes the whole armies of Israel to chase one guy in the wilderness. And God continually hides David. But it's, it's a, it, it's, it'd make a great movie. I am shocked no one has made a movie out of that story. And three times, he actually traps David. David. Three times he traps David and it looks like David is dead. And then God sends the prophets down from the mountains. And what happens is, is that this crazy, demonized, schizophrenic king encounters the prophets and he's changed back into the man he's supposed to be. He tears all his clothes off. I'm so glad we live in the new covenant. (laughs) The prophets were naked about half the time. And I'm I'm like, you know, for me, when I was in in my 20s and I want to look good without a shirt. And when you're in the 40s, you want to look good in a shirt. And when you're in your 60s, you're like, just easier to turn the light off before you go to bed. You know what I mean? Literally, Saul rips his clothes off. And for days, he prophesies with the prophets. And he turns around and goes back home and he's in his right mind for apparently several weeks until that bitterness begins to seethe in him again and brew in his spirit until he goes back to that schizophrenic spirit. That spirit comes back on him again and he begins to chase David. And two more times as he's about to capture David, the prophets come down from the mountain And he's changed back in to the man he's supposed to be. And I, I, I made a couple of obvious observations. You know, a God encounter can change your heart, but it will take the exercise of your will for your heart to stay humble. Every time Saul lost connection with the prophets, he changed back into the insecure man that was natural for him. Saul lacked the capacity of soul to manage his own gift by himself. He only prospered when he was in the company of other prophets. Saul's encounter was catalyzed in community, but it it all fell apart in isolation. Jealousy and offense were the kryptonite of Saul's life. The kryptonite of Saul's life. This man could have been one of the greatest kings who ever lived. And yet jealousy and offense and bitterness destroyed his life. I think, you know, we have, uh, Bill and I have been together 45 years, and we've seen so many people touched by the Lord, so many people. I can tell you that in Weaverville, in our youth group, we carried out kids in trances. It was common for us to carry them out to the car and for them to be in trances for six, eight, ten hours in heaven. And I can tell you, half of those kids don't walk with God today. Like, encounters can change you, but you must manage your heart. Encounter will not take the place of you managing you. It will not take the place of you of unforgiveness. It will not take the place of bitterness. My youth pastor, who was our junior high youth pastor, who I led to the Lord whose own daughter we carried out who was in a trance for eight hours. Him and I took her to his car and she was in a trance till the next morning in heaven and told him about heavenly experiences. He doesn't believe in God anymore. I'm just pointing out that encounters are beautiful. They open up opportunities, but you still have to manage your heart. You still have to stay in community. There's something that happens in community. Listen, you were never designed to live an isolated life. Neither was I. I don't care how great you are. I don't care what your last name is or how amazing you are or how big your encounter is. If you don't stay in community, you can't, you were never designed to manage you by yourself. Well, the church hurt me. I get it. I've heard it all. I've had it all. I've been here a long time. And I understand that people are people and that there are hurts. That's why there's forgiveness. (laughs) Because there are hurts. And, you know, I I think, you know, that iron sharpens iron thing. Sometimes I think God's like, these guys will hurt each other. I'll put them together. (laughs) And that way they'll learn about forgiveness. I want to share a, a, a few more things in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1 let me read it to you I'll stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart that I'll keep watch to see what he'll speak to me and how I'll reply when I'm reproved then the Lord answered me and said record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run for the vision is yet for an appointed time it hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. And though it tarries, wait for it, for it certainly will come, and it will not delay. Isn't it interesting? The Lord says, "The vision's for a long time, and it surely will come, a long time from now, it won't delay. I don't know about you, but when God says it's not for a long time and then he says it won't delay, I'm like, it feels like a delay when it's not for a long time. (laughs) And I'd like to point out that there are encounters that you have that aren't for you. They're actually for a generation after you. That you're having encounters today and you're like, "I I don't know about you, have you ever had an encounter, it was powerful, but it wasn't profound to you? And you're like, that was cool. People are like, that was amazing. You're like, yeah, yeah, it was. And not realizing that what happened to you is actually for the generation to come and God deposited something in you that they're actually going to inherit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you with me? Yes. I remember I've shared this many times when I was laying on the prayer chapel, that prayer chapel that comes in. We used to pray there in, in the mornings, uh, a couple of mornings a week. And I was laying in the prayer chapel just praying and it wasn't an extraordinary morning or anything. But suddenly, I was taken 100 years into the future. And you're like, how do you know you're 100 years in the future? I have no idea. Like, I actually had no idea. Like, I just knew I was 100 years in the future. And I was in a, I don't know, it was a mansion or a castle or a palace. This beautiful, ornate, huge house. And it was like, I don't know, it was like Thanksgiving. It was like a family reunion. But there was children and there was teenagers and there was, you know, men and women it's, I don't know, I mean, just to guess, but maybe like 70 people, like a fairly large family. And they were doing what families do. You know, kids are playing, women in the kitchen, men in the front room. They're just Everybody was just mealing around. And there was an old man standing in the front room in front of this huge fireplace made out of rock that went probably this tall, like 30, 40 feet in the ceiling, to the ceiling. Ornate, beautiful fireplace. And he's standing in front of the fireplace and doing what old men do. He was musing. And there was just some children around him. I don't know, eight or ten of them. Young children, half listening to him. And he was telling them about his past. Telling stories. And, you know, it was just kind of, yeah, just kind of what old men do. And then suddenly, the tone of his voice changed. And his eyes got this look as if he was looking into eternity. I'm standing right next to the old man. I can see him perfectly but he can't see me. And then he begins to talk about their royal legacy and their royal lineage. And when he began to talk, everyone stopped what they were doing as if there was some kind of alarm went off and they all ran into the front room and sat some on the floor, some on couches, and you could hear a pin drop as the old man began to recount their royal lineage. And their and their princely legacy. And he's telling them stories about how they received all this wealth, all this honor, all this prosperity. And then as he finishes his talk, he looks at the fireplace and the mantle of the fireplace and he points to it and he says, This all began. And when I looked with him to the fireplace, there was this huge portrait of Kathy and I, and he said, this all began with your great, great, great grandmother and grandfather, and when he finished that, I was instantly back on the floor in the prayer house, obviously in a puddle, and the Lord said to me, quit your ministry and build a legacy. From this day on, you shall live for a generation you will never see. And I want to say that sometimes our encounters are not for us. Sometimes they're for the generation to come. I want to tell you that, you know, we we live in an instant gratification generation. By the way, I'm not an anti, you know, these young Z guys, these millennials, I don't even know what they call them anymore. we got to make up new names. we got to change the alphabet and go the other way or use the Chinese alphabet or something. And we call them the Zers because, like, now, now we're in trouble. There's no more letters, and we're like, "And the end of the world is near." Hope you have a vision for tomorrow. You didn't get that, anyway. But we live in this generation that everything's so instant, and and this is the most innovative, inventive, imaginative generation I believe in the history of the world. There are more things being invented. In a year, then we're invented 100 years from now in an entire 100 years. 100 years passed. But we are so used to everything we do has got to be now. We've got to have it now. You know, there was a time, I know you're not going to believe this, you'll have to look it up. Google this. When, when people ran out of money, they couldn't buy things. It's true. Think about that. There wasn't no credit card. I mean, if you couldn't swap chickens or hogs, you pretty much were stuck with what you had. And if there was a tough winter, you you may not have three meals a day. All, all of this—it's like this—not very long ago. Like this would be my great—this gra- be my grandparents' story. This would be most of your great-grandparents' story. Though there was no credit cards, I'm pointing out that. If you wanted something, you want to save up for it. It might take you months, it might take you years. And now it's like, we put it on the card and, and... by the way, if you can't pay it, you just go to one of those credit places and you just make sure you don't have to pay for it. Just, it's all wonderful. <laughs> I was going to say some other things, but some people will get offended in it. <laughs> I've already offended some people, but that was on purpose. And what I'm getting at is that it's created a mentality that doesn't work in the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, God goes, I'll be right back in 2,000 years. And we're like, (laughs) Lord, I need $10,000. You go, just a minute. (laughs) I know that trick. I have students all the time. The team can tell you, Like they come up all the time like, man, I've been praying for this thing and, you know, I just, I'm I'm 22. I'm getting old. I need a man. (laughs) How long have you been praying? Six weeks. Fasted twice for hours. Just don't know what's happening. And what I'm getting at is this, is that God wants us to think from eternity he wants us to live from eternity some of the things that are happened to you they're not even for you I took this job I don't know why I'm in this job I hate this job the Lord told me to take this job but I've never been happy to this job and it's all about me it's all about making me happy it needs to make me happy and God's like it isn't for you your great-grandson is going to be the president of this company and you're paving the way I just don't it's just like it's just it's not all about you it's not all about me. I'm saying that we can find great joy by understanding that God thinks from eternity. He thinks future present. Some of our encounters are actually for people who are yet to be born. That's good. <laughs> no, see how it didn't go over very well? She so was like, I need it now. I need an encounter right now. I need to be delivered from this pain. And you know, God oh, God wants to deliver you from pain. If you're in pain, God wants to deliver you from it. You should never be in any kind of pain. <laughs> Good point, Chris. Never mind. Let's just move on. i will to do more and more, and then we'll do a little bit of ministry. Acts chapter 10. Why don't you turn in there? There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called an Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with his all, all of his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in, and he said to Cornelius, I'm fixing his gaze on him, and he much alarmed, He said, what, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter, for he's staying at the Tanner's house, a man named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who had been his personal tenants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. Remember, at this point, there are no Gentiles saved. But this man is giving, he's giving, he's giving offerings to Jewish people. He's a Roman soldier. He's giving offerings to Jewish people and he's praying. Are you getting like how how anti culture this is? This man's giving, he's not even saved, which we're about to figure out. He just has something in him that honors actually his enemies. He's giving to the Jewish temple and he and he's praying for the Jewish people. Just out of his heart. And the angel said, "You're building a memorial before God." I shared this this morning but You know, when they crossed the Jordan River or they crossed the Red Sea, God said to the Israelites, I want you to set up stones. Like set up stones in the river. When the river's dry, set up stones. Well, why am I supposed to set up stones? So that when the river's running again and your sons go, wow, dad, who set up those stones in the middle of the river? How did they do that? Then you'll go, oh, let me tell you the story of when God delivered us from the Egyptians, any part of the river, right there where those stones are. In other words, those are stones of testimony, stones of remembrance, of the acts of God in our lives. But what's crazy is, is that the angel says that in heaven, God is setting up memorial stones for acts of righteous people. And he says, Hey, your giving and your prayers for the Jews, there's a monument in heaven. I don't know. Does it say a monument to Cornelius? But I imagine, this is my imagination, God looks out one day and he goes, hey, that monument, have we ever done anything for Cornelius? No, Lord, he's still unsaved. Send an angel down there and get that fixed right away. In the meantime, Peter is hungry, goes upstairs, waiting for them to finish dinner, because it wasn't McDonald's where you drive through and You don't get your food in two minutes. You're like, call this fast food. This is where you had to wait long enough you go into a trance. (laughs) (laughs) And he's hungry, so he has a trance about food. I just think it's all funny anyway. And he sees, you know, like lobster and unclean things on this blanket. And he hears kill and eat. Three times that happens. And Peter every time says, never has anything unclean ever come to my life. No, I will not kill and eat. And God says to him, what I have cleansed, no longer call unholy. Mm -hmm. Now he wakes up from that trance, right? Who knows how long that lasted. And he, let me see if I can find it quickly. And it says, yeah, here it is. Verse 17 now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he might mean, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions from Simon's house, appeared at the gate. So Peter has no idea what the vision means. This trance, this vision, he has no idea what it means. And it says, not only does he not know, he isn't like a dream like, oh, I don't know what that meant. It says he was perplexed. And he's, you can imagine he's up there thinking, what was that? And suddenly there's a knock at the gate. And he opens the door and there's Gentiles there. And they're, they're asking Peter to go with them. And if you hear the rest of the story, you know that the Jews got mad that Peter even went with them. Because Jews and Gentiles were not supposed to cross-pollinate and Peter goes with him, still doesn't know what the vision's about, and gets to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius has his whole family assembled to hear the words of Peter because that's what the angel told him to do. And he gets there, and he sees this whole room full of Gentiles. And Cornelius just tells him to dream. And he goes, Now I know what the vision was about. And I want to point out that sometimes our encounters make no sense until we meet someone who's had a corresponding encounter. Sometimes the Lord gives us collective encounters in which I have an encounter I can't figure out, but someone else has an encounter he can't figure out. And when we get together, it makes total sense. And what I'm getting at is some of you have encounters You have dreams, you have no idea what they mean. But metaphorically speaking, Cornelius is coming. Listen, I'm prophesying this though. Cornelius is coming, and what you think is a ridiculous dream, you're perplexed about it, because you know it's something to do with the divine, you don't know what it is. Cornelius is about to knock on your gate. And you're about to have have your encounter mixed with his encounter or her encounter, and it's about to make total sense. And I want to tell you, this is a prophecy. The prophecy. I believe that the Lord is going to begin to release collective encounters. Yeah. Write this down. Collective encounters. I want to tell you, they're all throughout the Bible. When the Lord gave me this word this morning, he told me, collective encounters. Look up collective encounters. Collective encounters, what's that mean? Collective encounters. When someone has an encounter, another person has an encounter. and they admit. I'm like, oh, collective encounters. Think about Joseph of the Old Testament. Joseph has an encounter in a dream. And by the way, you talk about how important dreams are. Joseph had an encounter that changed all of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream which interpretation changed all of Babylon. They can be like, I'm a dreamer. It's like people take it casually. Like, I don't know what the dream meant. I'm just going to go on to the next one. It's like, write it down. Pray that God begins to give you interpretation of dreams. Dreams have shifted culture more often in the Old Testament than any other single encounter. Come on. Joseph has an encounter, and in this encounter, he sees his brothers bowing down to him. You know, I'm making it quick. He sees his brothers bowing down to him. He has a dream the next night. His brothers are all mad about it. Next night, he has another dream, and he sees his parents bowing down to him. And he interprets his own dream to the discontent of his family. Like, he's the youngest. All y'all, you're going to be bowing down to me? Going to be leader. That's with an L, leader. Leader. Mom and dad, you're mad? <laughs> i got another dream. I'm going to be leading you too. And they don't like it. And obviously, you know the story. His brothers sell him into slavery. Well, first, they're going to kill him. They're like, we can make money off the kid. They sell him into slavery. Becomes a slave. Then it becomes, goes from slavery to prison. It just keeps getting worse. But then something else happens. The pharaoh has a dream. And the Pharaoh dreams of fat and skinny calves. And where I'm going is this. Pharaoh has a dream. He has an encounter. He has a dream. He doesn't know what it means. Joseph has a dream. 15 years earlier. He thinks he does know what it means. But here's the point. If Pharaoh doesn't have a dream, Joseph dies in prison. But if Joseph doesn't have a dream, Pharaoh dies in a famine. Yeah. How many people are dead? Because we don't understand collective encounters. Yeah, right. That our encounter isn't just for me. It's not all about me. God's like, I'm going to be a great leader. God makes you a great leader. It ain't for you. I'm just trying to say, listen, just figure this out. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. When I have an encounter and God goes, you're going to be a great leader, I'm going, I'm leading for the benefit of other people. Pharaoh has a dream. It's crazy. Pharaoh doesn't know God. Pharaoh believes in multiple gods. Pharaoh believes in polytheism. And yet he knows the dream is somehow divine. A better example is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is definitely a polytheist. In fact, he's his own God. He sets statues up to me. I'm God. If you don't worship me, you're all dead. And he has a dream from the God of gods. He doesn't know what it means, but he knows it's divine. And he is so plagued by the fact that it's divine that he's willing to kill all of his wise men. If they can't interpret the dream. And here comes Daniel. And all I'm getting at is this is that God is giving us encounters. I'm telling you, encounters are gonna be this is gonna be the buzzword for the next three years. Have you had an encounter? People aren't gonna say, Did you get a word? Gonna have words, but the buzzword is gonna be encounters. Right. Have you had an encounter? Because an encounter is a little different than a word because an encounter actually has the power to transform you. But I want you to know that your encounter is collaborative with someone else's encounter. And it's in the synergy of your encounter and my encounter or your encounter and her encounter. You get the idea. It's in the collective synergy that comes from the other parts of the body that actually create the nitro, I think Bill said something funny, nitro and glycerin. Like, it takes takes two, they say, Mm -hmm. to actually bring about the kind of outcomes that the Lord has for us. And I believe that we're going to be talking about collective encounters more and more. And people are going to, I'll say, that some of the greatest testimonies we're going to hear in the next four years are Johnny had a dream and Henry had a trance and something happened. They got together and something crazy happened that they could never do by themselves. I believe that something powerful is happening and the encounters that are happening in these universities, they're going to spread because the key word is encounter. But listen, the encounter isn't to stay in the college. <laughs> These encounters, they're going to spread into the streets. Yeah. It's going to be much different. They're going to spread into the streets. And people who don't even know God, the Pharaohs, yeah. the Cornelises, yes. people that wouldn't be included in the yeah. university, in Bethel's Go campus, they're going to have encounters. Yeah. That's right. The kings of the earth are going to have encounters. And God's raising up the Josephs, the Esthers, They're going to be there at the exact right time. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvallatin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.